Now, keep in mind, less than two weeks, the current Chinese government is going to face another major reform. Now this time, not only it's more about the current sitting leader, but also regarding the current political and also this economic situation. Now we know that today China is considered as one of the largest economies in the world, which is competing head to head with the US and also with major allies and partners across the continent. However, given the situation, the zero COVID policy and also this aging population, putting everything together, China seems faces another hurdle one and more. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in this episode, we need to understand what can we make of the Chinese economy today and how about the future for China? Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite Dr. Antonio Grisefo. Now, Dr. Grisefo is a China economic analyst who spent over 20 years in Asia, including seven years in China and three years in Mongolia, where he teaches economics at the American University. And of course, that he published numerous articles, for example, The Diplomat and, and the South China Morning Post and many more. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Grisefo. Dr. Grisefo, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Uh, good morning, Will. Thank you. Now, Dr. Grisefo, I want to get started. I know recently that you wrote one of the amazing articles, which entitled World Economic Forum, More Social Engineering Than Economics. Can you help us to understand, as we mentioned in the intro, China plays such a significant role today when we look at this global economy. But meanwhile, China is also facing more issues related to this economic situation. But your article mentions that for this World Economic Forum, it's advancing its globalist agenda, which is more social engineering than economics. Help us to understand what is the meaning behind the current title? Well, one of the issues with the um, World Economic Forum is that they have policies or, or they're trying to enact policies which they believe are helping poor people or they, they want to help certain marginalized groups which is a wonderful thing to do but the policies are often very short-sighted and they will actually cause more economic harm than good and so it really becomes a matter of well what exactly is your goal is your goal to uh, improve the economic situation or is your goal to just force me to comply with whatever your rules are or your norms are that you're establishing. And in the case of the World Economic Forum, I often feel like it's just a matter of uh, wanting the world to behave a certain way and not really thinking through whether or not those changes will benefit anyone. Mm. You know, sir, you mentioned about, again, going back to the word called globalization. And I think even before the pandemic, people, or should I say experts or economists before the pandemic, try to understand the meaning of globalization. And of course that today, China plays a significant role. So, but many of us are questioning, we're wondering, why is China so activated in participating this globalization? Is it because the Chinese economy is facing more hurdles than ever, or China is actually can be one of the key players to help 
when we talk about this global economic slowness or what we call this global economic deadlock. So in other words, what is the role for China today? Again, this is something you also, you also mentioned in the article regarding globalization. Help us understand. Well, I think that uh, China's position is that if we if we move in this uh, globalist um, uh, direction, it's going to benefit China because China can extend the loans, China can sell the products. Uh, China would prefer to have a globalist system as opposed to the situ uh, system that we have now, which is a U.S.-led, uh, Western-led hegemonic system. Uh, China would like to see let's say more standardization across countries, uh, more globalization across countries, because ultimately will benefit China economically, or that I believe is what China believes. But meanwhile, China internally is also facing some major economic crisis as well. As we mentioned before, the current zero COVID policy and also about the aging population and also the labor shortage. I mean, putting everything together, correct me if I'm wrong, if China can solve the domestic issue in a more efficient way, how could the world expect China to be a advanced player or to be even the role model, or should I say a leader on this current economic slowness? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And, and that's sort of my position is that China has so many domestic economic problems right now. I don't understand how... China believes that they would be the savior of the world. I will say, however, that um, Xi Jinping's uh, speeches, his rhetoric of the past five years have moved quite a bit away from stating China's going to save the world. China's going to, you know, make the world a better place. I, and not that they're not trying, not that they're not saying that China's going to make the world a better place. But if you go back to speeches from 2015, 14, um, and earlier, you see a lot of this this feeling that just, you know, China's come along, the Belt and Road's come along, that's going to save everybody. And I don't see them saying this as often now. I mean, you have so many economic problems in China. Like just to, just really simple contradiction, an example of a contradiction. China's facing an aging crisis. When you're facing, facing an aging crisis, one way that you can deal with that is by allowing migrant workers. Mm. To allow workers to come from other countries. Um, historically, the United States has only entered into, well, it's not an aging crisis. We're starting to enter into an aging problem for the first time, uh, whereas Europe was there already 20 years ago or 10 years ago, right? But because we always had very high immigration, so because you have immigration, although the domestic population is having fewer babies, you're having immigrants, and, and they come from cultures that are still having more babies. And so this has kept the U.S., uh, population large and has kept our workforce growing, whereas in Europe they've dropped well below the replacement level of births. Well, China is well, well, well below the replacement level of births. You need two point, two point, a bit more than two children per family for replacement because obviously mom and dad will eventually die and you don't want your population to decrease in size. And of course, people are living longer. So now you've got more and more old people and then fewer people working. I mean, in China's situation now, because of the one child policy, you've got uh, since whatever, since 1978 or so, I mean, you've, you've got one child and then you have two parents and four grandparents. And the statistical likelihood that all six of those people are alive is higher today than it ever was in the past. So you've got six people that are going to be dependent on this one child 
who's working. So that's a very poor demographic. And for the first year, China's birth rate was actually lower than Japan's mm. uh, this year. Japan is actually starting to, I, I, I don't want to get too excited. We're not going to hold a party to celebrate yet, <laughs> but uh, Japan is starting to turn the, turn the corner a little bit on that, on that issue and a few other economic issues. Japan did a lot better this year than, um, than they've done in a long time, which is nice. But, but uh, yeah, China, unfortunately, their birth rate now has dropped below even Japan. So one way you could deal with that is so you're open to immigration. China's pushing a globalist agenda in other countries, but I don't see them opening their borders. Mm. I don't see them encouraging unlimited uh, immigration to China. Dr. Grisefo, I want to go back to the article. Again, this is something that you mentioned, which is interesting that according to one officials, it says companies that don't comply with a globalist agenda will be cut off from borrowing. Again, this is really ties in with what you said regarding Belt and Road Initiative. Of course, this is one of the significant uh, a signature on the current leader in China. Belt and Road includes, if I'm not mistaken, more than 100 countries that participated in this agenda across the world. But meanwhile, for some countries who are economically independent or economically stable, really can understand this bilateral or this mutual benefit between uh, the partnership. But meanwhile, there are some countries, for example, in Southeast Asia, they are not able to supply where they're not able to you know, put in a mild way, compensate what China offers actually on the table. But going back to the sentence, Dr. Grisefo, it says, if the companies or if, let's just say, enlarge it to any countries that who can apply with the globalist agenda will be cut off from borrowing, what message does that say from the Chinese perspective? Does that mean that, hey, listen, even though we are not the rule makers, even though we don't make the policies, but if you're not willing to work with us or economically speaking, you're not willing to comply some of the uh, obligations, I'm sorry that you might be looking at the end of the stick or you might be looking at the end of the, uh, of the list. Does that make sense? So what can we understand that? So to explain that, that statement, so the WEF, wants banks and financial institutions to incorporate corporate social responsibility as one of the uh the determinants of who can borrow and who cannot who they will extend a loan to and when i say corporate responsibility it's also just their definition of participating in globalism and if you don't participate or if you don't meet the requirements they want then they believe that you should not be able to borrow mm. so the problem with that is then we're not going to have two sides we're not, we're not going to have two sides to this argument anymore because if you're a corporation you absolutely you, you have to borrow you have no choice so then you're going to be forced to go along with the globalist agenda whether you want to or not All right so so that was the explanation of that of that statement now as far as china goes China is, uh, as far as the Belt and Road in China goes, so, so there's two different things here. So one is China is supporting the globalist agenda, but as far as the Belt and Road goes, um, company, uh, countries that uh, participate in the Belt and Road, it should be that they're doing this because they're going to accept these loans from China, they're going to build infrastructure and this will improve their GDP. Now, there's a lot of countries that have looked at that model and they said, well, I don't see how we're going to improve our GDP mm. by accepting this money or by building these products. Because if you look at a lot of the projects, there are things like sports stadiums and things that don't necessarily add very much to GDP. And this has been one of the criticisms of the Belt and Road. Now, a lot of this discussion is moot this year because uh, my personal feeling is that as China's 
internal economy is uh, really in trouble right now. They're going to be lending a lot less money. I mean, it's not just my feeling. I mean, obviously, we have the data on that. Right. But moving forward, I believe, I believe even more so that the Belt and Road is going to be sort of stalled. And also, a lot of com- uh, con- countries have been borrowing for a number of years. So the ones who haven't borrowed or the ones who are considering borrowing more, well, they're going to look to the ones already borrowed and say, okay, well, is Pakistan really better off now than they were? Is Sri Lanka better off now than they were? You know, and in um, across Southeast Asia, a lot of country, uh, a lot of the uh, projects have been canceled. You know, where companies, countries were almost willing to sign an agreement with China to build a high-speed rail or something, and then they looked at it and they said, you know, what what is the benefit? You know, um, I when I lived in China, I know one, one of the big things people would say to me all the time that they, they would say. Oh, America is such a rich country, but you don't have high-speed rail. We have high-speed rail, you know, so we're better. I said, look, you know, every year, every year we do an analysis on whether or not we need a high-speed rail in America, and we we just don't need it or it just doesn't work out economically. In other words, the only part of the United States where rail is a significant uh, means of transportation is in the Northeast Corridor, New York, Washington, Boston, Philadelphia. And high-speed rail would not even be able to get to its highest speed because the stops are there's so many stops in between, and these distances are really short. And so, if we put in a high-speed rail, we'd save fifteen or twenty minutes on a trip from New York to Boston at an expense of billions and billions of dollars. Right? So we don't want to do it. So I saw that um, Thailand, for example, had a really similar. They were originally going to build a high-speed rail from Chiang Mai to Bangkok, mm. and in the end, they determined that it was going to save. You know, 45 minutes or something or, you know, whatever the time was and it was going to cost so much money. And they said, OK, we're not going to do this. Same thing happened in Malaysia. So countries are definitely being more discriminatory about how they're borrowing, about where they're going to borrow. And then China, I believe, is also becoming more discriminatory in what they'll lend because China's, again, facing a lot of economic problems right now. And the fact that they have to restructure debt, um, you know, a lot of the Belt and Road debt has to be restructured now. So the countries that borrowed, in addition to not having the GDP gains from the Belt and Road, then they were subjected to the the COVID years. Okay, so we don't have to, extreme right-wing analysts in the U.S. might blame China for the financial situation that country Mm -hmm. is in right now. I would say, well, nobody's to blame for this COVID. This COVID thing happened. Uh, These countries went two years of, of no revenue. And, but they have to make repayment on these debts that they agreed to with China. So now those countries all have to re, re, uh, renegotiate their debts and, or refinance. And from a Chinese perspective, this also means China is not receiving payment mm-hmm. on this money that they've extended. So just as a purely uh, not to make any sort of a moralistic um, um, judgment, should China have loans, should they not have loans? I'm not interested in morals right now, just, just pure mathematics china lent out a bunch of money and now they can't collect it mm. right so china has a, effectively a non-performing debt on their books right now uh to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars mm. so you have all these belt and road debts that are extended and the other interesting thing is that when we analyze china's public debt china's public debt is much, much higher than its uh, government debt. The government debt's only about 60% of GDP, but the public debt is uh, like 280, 270% of GDP. Mm. But a lot of times that does not include the debt associated with um, the debt associated with the Belt and Road because it's covered as an, carried as an asset 
on China's uh, books, mm. but actually this is money that they may not be able to recover, right? So they're going to have to write that down. And once they write that down, the situation is going to look even worse than it does now. Mm. Dr. Garcefo, I want to get to the next part, which is income inequality. And again, within the article that you mentioned, for example, several countries, you mentioned the Democratic Republic of Congo, the United States and Switzerland. Of course, we're looking at China and some countries in Southeast Asia as well. But when we know that the when it comes to income inequality, number one has become rather prevalent everywhere. I mean, period. But we know the wealth gap between the rich and the bottom is getting wider and wider, particularly we're looking at the Western world. But meanwhile, that if we put all the countries together, again, based on the different GDP and based on this uh, different economic uh, outlook, how is that even possible that we could, so in other words, we could equalize this whole income become from inequality to quality? And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is one of the much greater ambitions that this uh, World Economic Forum has addressed, right? So in other words, how does that even work? Because you can't put the Republic of Congo and China and a Switzerland and a Vietnam or uh, the Philippines together. Because that means, number one, populations is going to play a major factor. And the second thing, as we mentioned before, the labor shortage and also this resources um, uh, 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 shortage given the situation in the war in Ukraine. But putting everything together, Dr. Graysop, help us to understand what is the goal of becoming from income inequality to income equality? What is the story behind that? I'm glad you asked that because that would be an example that also helps answer your first question about the World Economic Forum. So the World Economic Forum says we want to eliminate income inequality. Right. So what does that mean? Essentially, it would mean that every person in the world is going to earn essentially the same money. Mm. Uh, absolute madness, as you pointed out. It cannot be done. Now, if you take the per capita GDP, so basically take the GDP of a country, divided by the population, we give you some idea of what the average person is earning. It's not exactly right, but this is what we call a proxy for what the average person is earning. So in the United States, 330 million people, the GDP 23 trillion, whatever it is, you divide it out, works out to about $65,000 a year that the average American earns. And that's pretty close. If you were to scoop 100 people off the street and ask them what they earn, some of them are earning 40,000, some of them are earning 80, 100, whatever it is, and it's going to average out something close to that. Um, if you go to Democratic Republic of Congo or you go to Cambodia, you know, Cambodia, you're looking at $140 a month, mm. uh, less than $2,000 a year annual income, the U.S. $65,000 a year. So how would we normalize this? How would we equalize this? Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So I did. So I did just almost a comical way of calculating this i took the population of the earth and i divided i, I made the, G, the gdp per capita of the earth so you took the earth's gdp divided it by the population and it works out something like two thousand dollars a year you know so everybody would just be poor right like everybody would just be poor the people in the absolute poorest countries would be a bit better off than they are now and anybody in, in a wealthy country would just be poor mm. now Let's 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 move several steps beyond that. Why I believe the World Economic Forum is not economic. Assume that there was a law that everyone in the world was earning the same amount of money in every country. Okay, so Bangladeshis, everybody's earning the same money. 
China needs labor. Mm. Why would why would anyone move from Bangladesh to China to work for the same salary? Why would anyone leave their home? And, and, and I don't mean just that they don't want to go to China. I mean, sure. just, just any place, right? Why would you leave your family? Why would you move from point A to point B to work if you can get the same salary where you are right now? Right. And then why are there manufacturing jobs in China? Well, about 40, 50 percent of the total manufacturing done in China is exported to primarily to the U.S. and then to the EU, to other countries, right? So these are American companies, German companies, Swiss, Swiss companies, whatever it is, European companies, foreign companies that manufacture in China, Japanese companies, Korean companies, right? They all have manufacturing in China and then they sell their goods overseas. Why are they in China? Mm. Because it's cheaper. Well, if we have wage equality, those manufacturing jobs will stay in Japan or they'll stay in Germany. Right? Why Why does a German manufacturing worker earn $45 an hour and a worker in Cambodia earns uh, dollars per day, mm. you know, and, a, and a, a factory worker in China earns whatever, three, four hundred dollars a month, right? So whatever that works out to, $10 a day, $15 a day, the German worker is earning more per hour than the Chinese worker is earning for the day. But the labor productivity of the German worker is a lot higher. So if I was forced to pay the same wage in China that I was forced to pay in Germany, I would just do all my manufacturing in Germany, wouldn't I? I would just go to wherever the labor productivity is highest. That's where I would do all my manufacturing. So why does a Japanese worker earn more? Well, because the labor productivity is higher. You've got a highly educated workforce. You've got a lot of capital. They have advanced technology and they have a, a very, very highly skilled, highly paid uh, manufacturing force, right? Mm. So if we equalize wages, there would be no more manufacturing in, in probably any developed country, develop, developing countries would no longer have manufacturing that was exported there from developed countries. So in the long run, is that going to help someone? Mm. Would, it, would it help China if all the foreign factories left tomorrow? Would it help Cambodia if all the foreign factories left tomorrow? So this is where I believe that the World Economic Forum, they're saying that they want to help people. It's wonderful to want to help people. I want to help people too. Uh, but uh, they're not thinking it through from an economic standpoint. It's purely from a social engineering standpoint. Dr. Graceffo, I know you're very busy. Now stay with me. I have two more questions before letting you go. Now let's talk about the power of education. And also I know that this is something that you mentioned in the article as well. So in other words, we know that today education plays a significant role, especially among the younger generations. And again, you uh, live in China for seven years and you know that how the younger generations today, particularly in China or in some of the countries in Asia, are very much active in engaging these educational programs or hoping that they are able to use what they learn either domestically or from internationally bring the contribution back to the country. But with that said, in China, statistically speaking, there are actually more younger entrepreneurs appear in China. So in other words, people are getting into this age, you know, hopefully to become the next Jack Ma or hopefully become the next Mark Zuckerberg. But we know that it's much easier said than done. But meanwhile, when we look at the education, uh, the entire program worldwide, people also are saying that what is the purpose of education today? Because some people are questioning, you know, the cost of education. You know, again, if I if I live in a country that I can't even afford 
to buy food or daily necessities. Why even bother to get into education programs to become better, even though that could lead to many possibilities for career? But meanwhile, undeniably speaking, education still can open up the world of opportunities. So, Dr. Grisov, from your perspective, how does how should we balance or how should we understand the concept of education today fairly? Again, going back to the word globalization. Okay, so if we go back to the word globalization and we go back to the World Economic Forum, and why does Dr. Grisefo say the World Economic Forum is social uh, engineering rather than economics? Economics would tell us in free market economics, why does one person earn more than another person? Why? Because the product of their labor is worth more. Mm. Right? Why do you pay more to your lawyer than you pay to your hair, hairdresser? Mm. Why does an engineer earn more than a taxi driver? Because the product of their labor is worth more. How can you increase the value of the product of your labor? How can you as an individual increase the value of the product of your labor? Well, you can increase your education. So if we look at the Asian tigers and if we look at... Um, we look at Hong Kong, if we look at Taiwan, if we look at um, Singapore, if we look at Japan, Korea, these are all countries that were poor in the 1960s, mm. 1970s. Um, they had a reputation for making terrible products. They were at the absolute lowest end of manufacturing. I remember when I was a little boy, if uh, someone bought me a toy that said made in Japan or made in Hong Kong, I was like, what, you don't love me? <laughs> the toys, you know, they would just break, you know, as soon as you got them, right? Today, made in made in Japan means very high quality. Mm. And almost nothing is marked made in Hong Kong or made in Singapore anymore because they've moved beyond that. They're That's doing, right. you know, finance and, right. So they moved up the value chain. Well, how did they do that? Did, did somebody force that to happen? Did the World Economic Forum order that to happen? No. They did it through education. They educated the population, which increased the value of the product of their labor. Mm. Now, if we look at the United States, you, you said a number of very interesting things. You said something about education would benefit you in your domestic economy or going abroad and working. If we look at, and I teach in Mongolia, I taught in China, mm. I taught in you know Cambodia, I taught in a lot of countries where students were significant percentage of them were looking at if i get a good education and if i speak english i'll go in another country and work now americans never had that mm. now now a significant percentage of americans do work outside the country it's actually two percent which is huge mm. uh, people don't realize that about two percent of americans work outside of the country but when we're going through through our education no one's really saying to us oh you have to get a good education so you can leave the country and go work somewhere else mm. right so we got into good education we stayed in the u.s and then we helped to build the well, I didn't but, uh, but the other ones did right and so that makes a big difference and over over a period of years and years how many people left China left Singapore, left Taiwan, left Korea, left Japan to go work in other countries mm. and help another country develop rather than their own country. So that makes a tremendous, tremendous difference. And then a separate issue that you asked about was entrepreneurship. Now, entrepreneurship is extremely high in China. Mm. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. We have different cultures, have different personalities. Of course, we're all individuals, right? It would be right. racist to say, well, you're American, you must be this way, or if you're Chinese, you must be that way. But it is, is a reality that countries have cultural norms. They have a general personality of the country, and then it's up to the individual, you know, where they go with that. But on average, Chinese people are more entrepreneurial than say Americans or more than Japanese. Like Japanese have a very low level of entrepreneurism. And a really good back in the envelope check is that 
if you've worked abroad or, or you know, you're in, you're in, or, or you've been in Hong Kong or even in Beijing, um, when you see Japanese people and you meet Japanese people, nine times out of 10, when you say, what do you do? They say, oh my, I work for XYZ, Japanese humongous company. Mm. They've posted me to this foreign company, country for five years. I'm going to do my five years. I'm not going to get married in that country. And I'm going to go back to Japan and continue my career. And I'm going to marry a Japanese person, raise my Japanese family in Japan. And that's nine, nine times out of 10. That's what Japanese people are doing. We had statistics on this when I worked in New York City. In New York City, we had over a million Chinese. We had over a million Italians. But we had 50,000 Japanese. Mm. It's, a, it's a huge country. And, and New York, of course, is a very rich city. So you would think they would be there, right? It's only 50,000 Japanese. 80% of them were on five-year contracts. You know, very few of them got married. Very few of them would apply for immigration. It's five years, I'm going to go back. Now, Koreans, if you travel around the world and you meet Koreans or you meet Dutch people, which Holland's a relatively small country, right. and you meet these people everywhere in the world, what are you doing? Oh, I came here and I started a business. Mm. You know, and, and with Koreans, the numbers were actually reversed. It was like eighty percent of Koreans in New York City were, uh, you know, small entrepreneurs, whereas eighty percent of Japanese were working for big Japanese companies. Mm. And Dutch people, you meet them all over. I worked in Latin America. I've worked all over Asia, Southeast. You run into Dutch people everywhere. It's such a small country. They're everywhere, and they all running these small companies mm. so different countries have a more of an entrepreneurial spirit than other germans are not entrepreneurial mm. um so one of my theories my very uh clear economic indicators i think that prevents people from being uh, entrepreneurial is that um countries that have a very strong social system and with very high workers rights and salaries and things like that it's too much of a risk for those people to give up a full-time job and try to be an entrepreneur so like in Germany, the lowest job, you have 30 days paid vacation, you have full health insurance, you have retirement benefits, you have unlimited health uh, you know, protection. If you have a baby, you can draw your salary of three years. Well, there's no entrepreneur that can do that. Mm. So in Germany, to leave a German job, even if the job only paid 40,000 US dollars a year, but to leave and have the same degree of security, you would have to be earning like half a million dollars a year. So as an entrepreneur, it's almost impossible. So you don't even attempt it. Now in China, starting salaries for college graduates are very low. Mm. You know, and of course, salaries in Shanghai are dramatically higher than they are in the right. rest of the country. But even in Shanghai, the starting salaries are very low. Working hours are very long. So it's much easier for a young person to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to risk this guaranteed, you know, $500 a month that they're earning or 700, whatever it is, I'm going to risk that and go start my own company or join with my friends and have a startup. So that's, I believe, why you see a lot of entrepreneurism in China. And so then you asked yet another question, which was, well, is, is education worth it? Do we need the education? Well, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, no, you don't need the education. Mm. And I think that I think that we're too focused on this today. I think we're trying to send everyone to college. The U.S. did it first, and now China's doing the same thing. China graduated, I believe, uh, was it 10.5 million kids this year? Probably there's not 10.5 million kids that needed to go to college. Mm. A lot of these kids are going to get degrees into this ridiculous things or very low-tiered degrees. You know, obviously, with the Gaokao system, you have a, a percentage of Chinese students will go to really good universities that are on par with Western universities. And then 
bulk of them are going to go to these universities that are just, you know, just have terrible, terrible reputations, you know, and, and I'm not criticizing China. This is the, in the United States, the same situation that lots and lots of jobs in the U S that are degrees. And in another country, it's not a degree. It's a, it's a training program, right? You know, on the job training or an apprenticeship and we've turned it into a degree. Why? Right. So if you're going to be an entrepreneur, no, you don't need that. I think we need to go back to a system of having vocational schools. I think business school maybe shouldn't be a degree or there should be parallel programs where the bulk of kids would not get a degree in business. They would go and take basic classes in, uh, you know, bookkeeping, basic accounting, things that they need to run their own company. Um, They don't need a degree. Mm. And uh, so, for, and the other thing in China that, that why I think a lot of these degrees are wasted is that a significant percentage, I don't have the number at, the, at my fingertips, but it might be as high as 70 or 80 percent of Chinese university graduates do not work in the field that they studied. That's right. So, yeah. So, what was the purpose of the degree? And also, jobs turnover is very high in China. It was, I believe, 80 percent when I was in, when I was working in China. I believe it was 80 percent. So uh, if you're going to turn over your job every time, again, what are you doing with your degree? The degree serves no purpose, right? And if you look at the parents' generation, the the generation of parents, my generation and older of Chinese people, if they have money, how did they get money? Well, they got money by being entrepreneurs. Mm. They generally didn't make that money based on their degree, mm-hmm. right? It, it was the entrepreneurial generation that made the companies that were successful. They used that money to send their kids to college. The kids get a degree, and now the kids will never be as rich as the parents. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not just in China; it's in the United States as well. We find that the bulk of of wealthy people are either uh, uh, they're entrepreneurs, or either what we call service professionals, which means like lawyers and doctors who own their own practice, accountants who own their own right. practice, or they're like um, uh, skilled craftsmen who own their own company, you know, bricklayers and things like that that own their own company. But all of them make the same mistake. They send their kids to college to be English teachers. Mm. And kids will never earn the money the parents earn. So, so yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I think that we need to stop sending so many kids to college, but we, we do have to offer them some type of educative alternative, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, night schools where they would learn maybe some basic computers and accounting. Right. And that's all they really need. Well, Dr. Graceffo, again, I know you're very busy. I want to wrap up our conversation by talking about what's ahead. Again, we mentioned in the intro less than two weeks that China is going to face another political or this economic reform, you know, given the condition under the current leader, Xi Jinping, that the presidency continuation and also this economic advancement, a partnership with the world. But meanwhile, China also brought up this what we called China Dream, which is years ago. And people believe not only in China, but also across the world, this is actually the opportunity for the world to understand that China is on the rise and politically speaking and also that's economic speaking. Now, putting everything together based on what we just discussed, how much do you think that China Dream actually still matters today? And also from let's say after this reform or after this uh, congressional meeting, how should we understand China in a new perspective? Or is there going to be even a new perspective regarding the current political and also this economic situation in China today? If we, as I said earlier, if we go back five years, six years, 
and we compare the volume on the China dream has been turned down tremendously. Mm. Um, you're facing economic realities and political realities right now that just make it impossible um, or make it very, very, very difficult, very unlikely. And also when people don't have work or they don't have jobs or they're facing very high unemployment or they can't buy food, um, they don't generally buy into very lofty ideals or you know slogans and things like that. So I think that um, it's going to be very hard to uh, to keep this sort of momentum of the China dream going. You know, right now, China's facing a tremendous debt crisis. Uh, you've got the ongoing COVID lockdowns, of course, but the thing about the debt crisis, particularly the real estate sector, I keep reading reports that say the real estate sector accounts for 20 to 30 percent of the uh, the economy, and if it collapses, it's going to be bad. And I just shake my head and I say, you're underestimating it. Mm-hmm. It might be 20 to 30 percent directly, but what about all the services that are sold to the real estate sector, mm-hmm. to the construction sector. What about the raw materials? What about the processing, transportation? What about 250 million migrant workers in China that are registered in hukos in the countryside, but they're actually working in the cities uh, in construction and things like that? And they're not counted. They're not counted by unemployment because basically they are employed in their hukou. Even though they're actually earning their money working as construction work, right? So on paper, the unemployment rate in China is still relatively relatively low, although the youth unemployment rate is staggering, it's twenty percent. But I believe the overall unemployment rate is only about five point six or six percent. But it is not counting how many migrant workers did not leave the countryside this year to work in the city. And remember that they go to the city, they earn money in construction, and then they spend that money, and that's and that's where your GDP is coming from. And it's supporting the grocery store, it's supporting you know, every other kind of business. So I believe that the real estate crisis is much worse than what people believe. Mm. And the other issue is that the local governments, the the debt of local governments and municipal governments uh, to stimulate the economy, the uh, percentage of bonds that they're allowed to issue has been increased. Mm. And how do these local governments and city governments usually pay off the bonds? Well, they pay off the bonds from their revenue. 80% of their revenue comes from real estate sales. Oh, wait a minute. Real estate sales are down. Mm. So how are they going to pay off those bonds? So I believe the problem is much, much, much worse than it looks on the surface. And very interestingly, if you look at the projections, Nomura downgraded their projection for China's growth this year to less than 4%. And they're down now. I think they're, they may be down to like 3.5. And um, Oldman is still thinking it's going to be, I can't remember, it was much higher. Maybe it was between 4 and 5. And I just thought... There's no way like the pessimistic view is probably a lot closer and if not for this year for next year and ongoing mm-hmm. so how that is going to then support the china dream i'm just not sure mm-hmm. I mean, this debt thing has to be brought into this has to be dealt with the zero COVID has to be dealt with and um you know the belt and road i don't see how the belt and road's going to move forward until until you deal with all these things you know part of the belt and road was that you were sending workers overseas so uh, to work on Belt and Road projects, which was then decreasing unemployment in China. Right. But of course, it's all be, being financed through debt. And it was being financed through debt that they thought they were going to recoup from the countries where they're working. And that's not working out. So I just don't see how the China dream will continue. And as far as like China's place in the world, what I imagine is going to happen, I, I don't predict a collapse of the Chinese economy. But I mean, I do, but not in the sense 
that it's going to fall apart. I mean, right. I think the collapse is just that it's not a real collapse. It's just that China is going to, from now on, I believe China will just have normal rates of growth. We'll just have normal rates of growth that are, you know, normal for a country of that size. It's quite developed, but uh, not not at the level of, you know, U.S. and Germany, uh, you know, in Japan, but but much better than most of the other countries. But maybe maybe three three point three or something is going to become the norm. You know, and if you look at other countries, I mean, China kept the run going much longer. In any other country, mm. I, mean, I remember when Vietnam was. Oh my goodness, Vietnam was turning in double-digit growth, and they were doing so great, you know. And now they've just come down to kind of normal. You know, of course they're going to grow faster than the U.S. Everybody is because we're right. we're a very mature country, you know. But uh, but yeah, I think that that's what the future of China is going to be. Is going to be like three, three point three. It's going to become the norm, and um, they're going to have to figure a way to move up. The other issue is that I don't think that. China ever planned that in this year, 2022, they would still be doing some very low end manufacturing. I really thought that the plan was to shift entirely to high end manufacturing. And that transition just hasn't taken place. If you look at Made in China 2025, right, it actually says that, right, by 2025, you shouldn't be doing any low end manufacturing. And China's not successfully moving up the value chain. Um, they're doing high-end manufacturing, but it's not enough. And then the other question I have to ask as a person, okay, I am an economist, but I care about people very much. Mm. So here's my question. Is the guy from the countryside that was working in the garment factory, when that garment factory job leaves and it is replaced by a semiconductor factory, is that guy from the countryside going to be able to work in the semiconductor factory? Is that the same worker or is he just going to be out? Is he just going to be lost? You know, and this is this is happening everywhere in the world, but everywhere in the world or in the developed world, Germany, the United States, you know, Western Europe, the gap of education across the society is much lower. So as much as China is producing 10.5 million college graduates every year, there's hundreds of millions of Chinese that are just uneducated. I mean, the average the average level of education in China is only like uh, six six and a half years. Mm. The average the average adult only has six or six and a half years of, of education. Now, can that person with six and a half years of education get a job in the semiconductor factory? So this is a problem. The whole world is facing this problem, but it's more acute in China because China is facing this problem much earlier in their development than the U.S. did or than Germany did. Germany educated the population, and then the growth started, you know, dropping off. With with China, China was still a work in progress, and then the growth is decreasing. And I think Dr. Grisoff, uh, um, Grisefo, I think it's you're right because again, right now. China number one is facing a lot more major hurdles in terms of economy and also domestically speaking, it's quite worrisome when we look at the future for the younger generations. And of course, that today for globalization, nothing is certain, and no one should be very much confident about what's going to happen. Not only China, but also regarding other players in the world. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Antonio Grisefo. And Dr. Grisefo is a China economic analyst who spent over 20 years in Asia. Of course, I strongly recommend everyone to check out his book, again, including about China, including Beyond the Belt and Road Initiative. And most importantly, that recently Dr. Grisefo came out with the article called World Economic Forum, More Social Engineering Than economics. 
Dr. Grisefel, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And of course, we really, really appreciate your insights and also this economic analysis. And we love to have you back on the show as we continue to pay attention to China and also rest of the world regarding economy, politics, and most importantly, about these international changes. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so much, Will. I was really happy to be here today and look forward to coming back.